0: Well, it's good to be back. For you that aren't aware, I was gone for two Sundays on a <laughs> on a cruise. <laughs> uh, we had a lot of fun. There is an occupational hazard when you go on a cruise. This is my third pair of pants that I tried on this morning. food was plentiful. Let me put it that way. We thank you for praying for us. We did go through a storm. I think it was Tropical Storm Nicole, and there was some rocking and rolling for a while, but uh, the ship was never in danger. There was a few people that turned kind of green, but other than that, two ports of call, we did not, uh, we weren't able to to go to Jamaica or the Cayman Islands because we couldn't dock and the ports were closed because of the storm. But we had a wonderful time and it's good to be back, so let's prepare ourselves this morning in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, the option of uh, confessing privately to God any unconfessed sins, which ensures the filling of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your faithfulness. We thank You for Your grace and Your Word. We thank You that You never leave us or forsake us. Indeed, You are the one that gives us the grace that is sufficient for every exigency in this life. So we pray that You will help us this very morning to focus and concentrate on Your mighty Word. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's been three weeks since we were in our mini-series, if you will, of the Christian government and Romans 13. And we ended last time with a little bit of Latin. I don't, remember, I don't know if you remember that or not, but we're going to go back and look at a couple of words that I think are important for you to know, a few phrases that will help uh, read us back into the picture of what we're studying. You might remember this. The word Lex is Latin for law, and Rex is Latin for king. It was in the, I think, the 15th century that we had um, a man by the name of Samuel Rutherford that wrote a book called Lex Rex, and unless you understood this, what these Latin terms are, you may not recognize what the title of the book is about. So we'll look and see what they uh, actually mean. The question is: Is the government, our king, which is represented by the Latin word rex, is the government or the king the law? In other words, do do they? Um, are they answerable to the law? Or are they above the law? Or is the law, which would be unalienable rights or the Bill of Rights, which is represented by the Latin term lex, the king? So essentially, is the law the king or is the king the law? That's what was the question. Do we have a lex rex society? That would be, is the law over the king? are a rex lex society where the king is over the law. Uh, we could go into months of study with regards to historical facts of how for a long time societies, especially in Western Europe, were under a rex lex society because they, they thought that the king had the divine right of kings is what it was called that they had the uh, power, the ability, and the right to make the law whatever they wanted it to be. And when Samuel Rutherford came along and he wrote Lex Rex in the book with the title, Lex is above Rex. So even in the title itself, it's showing that the law is above the king. And as you can imagine, the kings weren't all too happy about the book. And uh, they burned all they could, all they could find of the books. And they were going to, uh, they arrested him and they were going to execute him. But he died before that happened. So <clears throat> this this brings a, another uh, Latin phrase or actually two Latin phrases to mind that I think will help you understand um, The situation, you have the Latin phrase de facto. That's D-E-F-A-C-T-O. It means by deed. It's said of something that is the actual state of affairs in contrast to something legal or official standing, which is described as de jure. We'll look at that in a moment. De facto refers to the way things really are rather than what is officially presented as the the fact. I'll give you an illustration. In Mexico, at the present time, there are warlords who are actually in control of certain areas of Mexico. That is the de facto government would be those gangs, the the drug cartel and so forth, that is the de facto government. Now, there is a de jure government. In other words, there is a facade of legitimacy. Uh, they have a, a government officials, however, they're not actually in control. It's the drug cartels that are actually in control. They are the de facto government in Mexico as we have it today. Now, de jure is another Latin phrase, that's D-E-J-U-R-I, sometimes spelled D-E-J-U-R-E, and it means by law. So it means official in contrast with de facto. It's analogous to the, to in principle, whereas de facto is to in practice. In other contexts, it can mean according to law, by right or legally, also commonly written de jure, the classical form. So this is the law. What is lawful, what is right, is called de jure. But de facto is what you have, something that is existing in the state of affairs if we may find something, would be called the de facto. But the de facto... Uh, is not what it appears to be. Now you'll notice on the de facto up in red at the end of that paragraph I have Rex Lex. And I have it in red to show that it is parallel to de facto. So when you have a dictatorship or you have any authority, as I said in Mexico it would be the drug cartel, when it is over the law and they are, they are operating apart from the legitimate delegated authority that God has given, then they could be referred to as de facto authority. They are in charge. They make the rules, and they are the authority in the land. And then you see down in De Jure at the end of that second paragraph, I have Lex Rex. That would be the law over the authority of, of whoever it may be. It could be a president, it could be, a prime minister, it could be a king, whoever it is. When the law is over the delegated authority that God has given, then it is de jure. So uh, in many cases today you find that there is authority across the globe that is acting in a de facto capacity. That means they are the authority. They make their own laws. They're not submitting to God and they are the de facto, in fact, they are the governing authorities, even though uh, many times you'll see a facade of legitimacy with a government that appears to be in power, but indeed someone has taken it over. So we have what? Lex and Rex, de facto, de jure. Now, all of you get out a piece of paper and we'll have a test now. <laughs> Some of you kind of turn pale there for a moment. So we're going to continue in our notes. And you can take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 13. Or you could look up here also. We're going to continue our study today in Romans chapter 13, verse 5. How do you like that date? 10, 10, 10. I can't remember that one. I don't know when that will roll around again or anything that you have the, the same numbers, but I thought this is a very neat day. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It doesn't matter whether it's 10, 10, 10 or any other numbers. That's what we're to do. Okay, Romans chapter thirteen, verse five. Whoop! What did I do? I just, all I did was hit a button. There. I don't want you to see while I scramble here. Well, oh, here it is over here. We'll try it again. Okay, Romans thirteen five. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. I guess it would be a good idea, since we haven't been here in three weeks, to go ahead and start with verse 1, so we get the continuity of the flow of things here. So if you have your Bibles, Romans 13, verse 1, "...let every person be in subjection to governing authorities." For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you, for good, If you don't have that underlined, this would be a good time to underline it. Very important part. For rulers are actually ministers of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. That would be capital punishment. For it is a minister of God see that? Underline it twice in that verse. It emphasizes the fact that governing authorities are ministers or servants of God, of course, for good. An avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Verse 5, wherefore it is necessary to be in subjection not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. Now that's where we pick up the study today and this is where you can look up here. Fear of punishment or reprisals by governing authorities if we do evil is not the only reason we should submit to them. This may be why criminals submit, but there is another reason given uh, given why we should submit to government uh, mandates and that is because of conscience. Of course, Criminals, the only reason that they don't break the law is because they're afraid of the consequences. It's not because their conscience would um, have them do otherwise. And so, of course, that's one reason, is because of fear of reprisals and punishment. The other issue is, according to this verse, conscience. Now, most people only see one side of the conscience issue in this verse. If we didn't obey the law, it would go against our conscience because God commanded us to submit to governing authorities. Our conscience motivates us to submit. Now, that's, that's the way just about everyone sees this, and they think that's the only, only issue with regards to conscience in this verse. But there's another part to this also. What if the law is evil? What if it goes against the Bible or our God-given rights? In that case, our conscience would motivate us not to submit. So the conscience is a two-edged sword here. And we have to realize that the whole context of Romans 13, verses 1 through 7, is in the light of a, a a government or governing authorities, whoever is in authority, who are acting as God's servants for good. And so of course if they're acting as God's servants for good, then your conscience would say okay, they're not passing uh, laws that would be against the Bible or against your God-given rights and your conscience would motivate you to obey those laws and that is that is the way we would take that verse for sure. But what I'm what I'm showing you is that when you realize that Uh, Most governments are not operating that way. What are we to do when there is an evil law against our God-given rights, something that is against the Bible? If the uh, government came out and said, for instance, that anyone who speaks out against a homosexual is committing a hate crime and they forbid pastors to teach that homosexuality is a sin. Okay, that would be an evil law, and I would not obey it. Because if I did obey it, then my conscience would hurt me. It, it would be against my conscience. So in that case, I would I would use my conscience not to obey the law, but to disobey the law. You see the other side to this? Now, this side is not given here because the whole context has to do with... Uh, Governing authorities operating as servants of God for good. But this is the other side to it. This is a quote from Romans 13, revisited by Chuck Baldwin, February 27, 2009, newswithaview.com. This is what uh, Dr. Baldwin says. Paul makes it clear that our... Submission to civil authority must be predicated on more than fear of governmental retaliation. Notice he said, wherefore we must needs be subject not only for wrath but also for conscience sake. I'm pretty sure that's the King James Version. Meaning our obedience to civil authority is more than just because they said so. It is also a matter of conscience. This means we must think and reason for ourselves regarding the justness and rightness of our government's laws. Obedience is not automatic or robotic. It is a result of both rational deliberation and moral approbation. We've already gone through the, the three attitudes towards the Christian and his submission to government. If you'll remember just quickly, I'll review those. The first view is that uh, God has delegated unlimited authority to the government and we are to submit to everything. And we pretty well dispensed with that uh, pretty easily. The second attitude towards uh, the Christian, towards the government, is the fact that God has delegated limited authority to government and that we are to obey laws as long as they don't conflict with our faith. I just gave you an illustration a moment ago with regards to homosexuality. It is my faith, it is my, it's my belief based on my faith, and my faith is based on the Word of God, that the Bible condemns homosexuality and it is a sin. And I don't care what the government may say with regards to what I'm going to teach If they said, we're going to throw you in jail because you're going to be committing a hate crime by saying that homosexuality is a sin, well, you'll have to come visit me in jail because I will not submit to such a a law, statute, rule, or whatever it may be. The third attitude is that God has delegated limited authority to the government, not only in issues of faith, but also in issues of freedom and justice. And that's the three views. Now, what we're looking at here, sometimes when we're looking at the conscience with regards to Romans chapter 13, verse 5, if the law is a legitimate law, in other words, if it doesn't conflict with your faith with regards to God, and it doesn't conflict with your uh, rights, your God-given rights, as far as the Bill of Rights is concerned, then your conscience would dictate that you obey that law. Whether you like it or not, you still obey it. However, if it is a a law that is what I would call an evil law that goes against your God-given rights, against what the Bible has to say, against your faith, then you would be going against your conscience in order to obey that law. So I'm trying to give you the full 360-degree view of this verse. We are, all, we are all subject to natural law, the law written in our hearts. Uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 15. I have that verse on PowerPoint. I wish I would have just went ahead and put it here because I've been having a little war with my PowerPoint here today. Let's see where it is. Yeah, here it is. Okay, right here. Nope, nope, that's not it. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. You're not supposed to see all that. Okay. <laughs> all I was trying to do is get to the verse. Next time I'll just put it in the notes. So this is what Romans chapter 2, verse 14, 15 says. For when Gentiles do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law, are law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So the reason I brought this verse out is to help you understand that there is a natural law that God has put within all of us. You can call it the conscience, if you will, but the, the Gentiles were doing things that, They were obeying the law that God gave the Jews and they didn't even have the law because according to Paul, God had already written the law in their hearts. It was their conscience. The Jews had the law and they weren't even obeying it. But the Gentiles were and they didn't even have the law. So I'm highlighting the fact that we all do have a conscience and I am submitting to you that this conscience is superior to... Any man-made law. So here we are back to where we were. William Blackstone was a studied and devoted Christian scholar who wrote the following. Quote, This law of nature being co with mankind, and that's not co-evil. It, it's co-evil. I guess that's how you pronounce It, it means it originated at the same time. So, This law of nature being co-evil, meaning originating at the same time with mankind and dictated by God Himself, is of course superior in obligation to any other. It is binding over all the globe, in all countries and at all times. No human laws are of any validity if contrary to this. And such of them as are... Valid derive all their force and all their authority immediately or immediately from this original. Y'all, y'all understand what this is saying—that the law that God has written in your hearts is superior to any God-given, I mean, any uh, man-made law—and the fact that man-made laws legitimately operate. From this law of nature or of conscience. And that was quoted from a William Blackstone of the nature of laws in general. The next phrase, but also for conscience sake. So verse 5 says, <clears throat> Excuse me, wherefore it is necessary to be in subjection not only for the cause of wrath, now we're on the phrase, but also for conscience sake. We are to do good in order to please God and to do what is right. Our own conscience should restrain us from doing what is evil. Our conscience tells us it is right to submit to what is good. The other side of that coin is that our conscience tells us it is wrong to submit to what is evil. The battle cry of the war of independence. Well, that's new. (laughs) Just ignore that. I have a a program that likes to take over sometimes. The battle cry of the War of Independence in 1776 was, resistance to tyranny is obedience to God. Some allege that this was not biblical because that phrase is not found in a Bible, in the the Bible. I have, uh, there was an article that came out in the Berean Call, I think it was last year, and a a person was trying to uh, say that we don't have the right to, uh, refuse to submit to authority in any case. He would take that viewpoint number one. And he says one reason that this resistance to tyranny is obedience to God, this clarion call of the, the first war of independence in our nation, he says that it was evil and it was wrong and it was sinful because you don't find it in the Bible. And so I'm kind of responding to that. Just because a phrase is not found in the Bible does not mean that the principle isn't there. And I have some verses here to demonstrate that I think the principle is there found in the Bible. James chapter 4 verse 7. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Are we not resisting evil when we resist the devil? Ephesians chapter 6 verse 11 and 13. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. So these are verses that suggest that we are to resist evil. This is a quote from R.B. Theme Jr., Christian Integrity Book. Quote, freedom without authority becomes anarchy in which no one is free. But authority without freedom is tyranny which ceases to be legitimate authority. No tyrant can remain in power without the consent and corporate, uh, cooperation of his victims. Here's another quote by the same author, this time in uh, class notes of Revelation chapter 2. And... Uh, He quotes as follows. He, referring to the believer, has therefore the freedom, the free will, the self-determination to choose between legitimate and illegitimate authority. Legitimate authority delegated by God. Illegitimate authority provided through satanic administration of the rulership of this world. Therefore, all human authority is a matter of human choice, human volition. Legitimate authority won't work unless someone accepts that authority. And even illegitimate authority won't work unless someone accepts that authority. So he's making the point that your volition and the choices that you make which should be based on what is in your soul and your right or wrongness in any issue would be determined by your conscience. And just because someone has authority, whether it is legitimate or illegitimate, actually is going to, whether you submit to that authority, is determined by your choice, your reasoning. You are going to analyze a situation. You're going to analyze what the circumstances are and make a determination whether you should submit or not submit. And this is given even in legitimate authority. For instance, here's an illustration. Uh, The husband is the head of the home. He has authority over his wife uh, according to the Bible. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 and following, many verses. But the husband's authority doesn't mean a thing if the wife doesn't submit to that authority. Well, well, I shouldn't say it doesn't mean a thing. It it is uh, legitimately delegated by God. But no husband can force his wife to submit. It has to come from within her. She has to recognize that this is God's will for her, for her to submit to her husband. Uh, Ladies that are not married and contemplating marriage someday, remember that because that is part of the structure that God has set into marriage. And when you marry someone, I don't care if he has a full head of hair and a big gran and has muscles. doesn't matter. All that will go away in time. And your marriage is going to be in jeopardy if you don't realize that God has commanded you to submit to His authority. But what if He's wrong? What if He's unreasonable? Well, what do you do? Well, you go back there in the library and get my latest book on marriage. You're married. Now what? It's better to read that book before you're married, by the way, than after. But it does deal with people who are married and have difficulty and so forth. My my whole point here is that your submission to authority is predicated upon your knowledge of Bible doctrine, essentially, because you have to recognize from your conscience whether you should submit to someone or not. In the scenario I gave you a moment ago with the husband being the the authority of the wife, what if he tells her, "Uh, honey, we're low on funds. I've got a 45 in the drawer. I want you to go down to first savings and uh, see how much money you you can rob. We need about 100 grand. That'll be fine. What is she to do then? Well, the Bible says she's to submit to her husband. Do you see the parallel what I'm showing you with Romans chapter 13? This is the information telling us that when uh, governing authorities are operating correctly as ministers of God for good, we are obliged and commanded to submit to it. But there are extenuating circumstances when a husband makes such a declaration to his wife, she is not obligated to obey that. And it's the same thing with governing authorities because the husband has stepped out of the realm of his delegated authority and is no longer a legitimate authority by making such a dastardly type of command to his wife. And it's the same thing. She is not obliged to obey that. We are not obliged to obey evil mandates and dictates by our government, because they have stepped outside the periphery, the area that God has delegated to them, God never delegated them to be a minister of Satan for evil, and when they become that by their oppression, then we are not ob- uh, obliged to obey that, and it comes from our conscience. Here's an example: the Nuremberg trials. How many of you have heard of the Nuremberg trials? I'm sure yeah, shows how what an elderly. Uh, flock we have here all the kids are going our conscience is a two-edged sword it praises us when we do good and condemns us when we do bad it praises us when we obey legitimate authority that is acting as a servant of of good and it condemns us when we obey illegitimate authority acting as a servant for evil a good example of this is the nuremberg trials that were held in 1945 where war criminals were tried for infamous crimes against humanity every one of the defendants had the same defense uh, there was a, a movie called the um, Ner- what was it the um yeah the nuremberg trials <laughs> do i have it in here somewhere <laughs> Let's start over. (laughs) I remember seeing the movie. In fact, I have a picture you all saw it a moment ago as I was flipping through. And every one of the defendants to the man said not guilty based on this same excuse. They said they were not guilty because they were only following orders. They committed atrocities because they refused to disobey the authority over them. This is the end result of the belief that we do not have the right to choose which orders or laws we will obey and which ones we will not obey. The majority of the war criminals were executed because the court realized that the authority of their own conscience superseded the authority of those over them. Now that's very important because... They all said the same thing. We're innocent. Why? We were only doing what we were told. We were following the authority that was over us. Let's see if I can go to the picture now. I find it when I don't want it. Yeah, here it is. Have you ever had a computer where it clicks everywhere except you don't want it to click? Okay, (laughs) here it is. Okay, the Nuremberg Trials. Defendants in the dock. The main target of the prosecution was Herman Goering. Herman Goering was a monster. Here he is right here. at the left edge on the fir- first row of the benches, considered to be the most important surviving official in the Third Reich after Hitler's death. You see, I can remember in the movie they had this, this is, a, a, of course, a actual picture, but the soldiers back behind with the white helmets, they depicted this perfectly in the film. Um, are you sure the movie wasn't called Judgment at Nuremberg? I, it just came to me. Um, it, yeah, uh, anyway, it, it portrayed this, and you could see the look of shock and dismay on these prisoners, these war criminals, as they were reading the punishment, which in most cases was execution. And it's because they didn't understand what I'm teaching you here today. Normal course of events, what do we do? We submit to government, and it's, it's fine and dandy. However, there are times when an authority can step outside the boundaries that God has set for it. And then when they do that and they try to oppress, then it's another ball game. Now let me see if I can get back to where I was. I think I can do this pretty easily. I've done it twice. Yeah, okay. I touched no button. <laughs> it used to be blue. I don't know what. I, this is the color of some of the people on, the, on board when we were going through the storm. Okay, the court's verdict was correct because it was based on the right premise. When there is a clash between one's conscience and those in authority, it is the conscience that, we should, that should be followed. We are all responsible, God, for the choices and decisions we make, regardless of what those in authority may say. People have the right to disobey unjust laws and the dictates of the states when it violates their conscience. Of course, this does not suggest that we should refuse to submit to injustice in trivial matters. Probably the most prudent thing to do when you're convicted for speeding, even though you weren't speeding, is to pay the fine and move on. In other words, you you have to decide what hill you are ready to die on, is one way of putting it. And not for trivial things do we, do we make a stand. Even if it goes against our conscience, we have to have common sense here. And this is actually delineated very clearly in the Declaration of Independence. And here's what it says. Prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be Change for light and transient causes, and accordingly, all experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer, while evils evils are sufferable, than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security so you see what i'm saying don't take what i'm what i'm trying to teach here and you get a traffic ticket and you're ready to uh, go go to prison for 50 years if necessary to prove that uh, you weren't speeding or whatever it may be you have to have uh, common sense in these things but there are times and there has been throughout Throughout the ages, that people are faced with the issue: Am I going to go with my conscience, whether it is to obey or disobey, or am I just going to go along with the herd? Here's some, here's another issue that has to do with this same subject that will illustrate our jury system. I didn't actually want you to see that yet, but you y'all are fast readers. America actually operates under a three-vote system. Everybody knows that the, the, the first vote is the vote that you have when you go to the polls to elect someone, and that is one control that we have over uh, tyranny, is that we can try to vote people in that are going to be uh, just and righteous and true and, in fact, be ministers of God for good. The second vote and the third vote, a lot of people don't realize the importance of. They don't. They don't even realize that they, uh, uh, that this is a check on tyranny. The second vote is as a juror on a grand jury. And the third vote is a vote as a juror on a trial jury. I just didn't want you to see that yet. I you to Now you can see it. The vote of a juror is the last safeguard against tyranny. Now, there's more to this than what meets the eye, and you'll understand as we continue here. I'm going to quote from the Citizen's Rule Book, Jury Handbook, page 4. And it says the following. When someone is acting as a jury member during a courtroom trial, he has more power than the president, all of Congress, and all of the judges combined. Congress can legislate, that is, make law. The president or some other bureaucrat can make an order or issue regulations, and judges may instruct or make decisions. But no juror can ever be punished for voting not guilty. A juror can, with impunity, choose to disregard the instructions of any judges or attorney in rendering his vote. If only one juror should vote not guilty for any reason, there is no conviction and no punishment at the end of the trial. Thus, those acting in the name of government must come before the common man to get permission to enforce the law, a lot of American, a lot of Americans don't even understand this or know this. If you are arrested of a, uh, you're arrested in a crime, uh, uh, supposedly, allegedly, you committed a crime. Before that can even go to to court, uh, they must have a grand jury of the people of this person's peers. And the grand jury is going to either give a presentment, means, which means it is, it merits going to trial. And if they don't think that there is enough evidence to merit a trial, it doesn't go to trial. In other words, you can vote not guilty or, or just no presentment. But even if there is a grand jury and it does go to, go to trial because a presentment has been given, then you're on a trial jury, it's in a trial, then it only takes one of the 12 in order to uh, quell the deal. In other words, one juror member can vote not guilty and there's no conviction. Now, here's the thing. Today, not all judges, but a lot of judges, maybe even most judges will say that you can only judge the facts in the case that you cannot judge the law itself. Well, let's look at that, see what it says. So the principles that submission to our conscience supersedes submission to odious laws is borne out in our legal system consisting of independent jurors on grand juries and trial juries. Contrary to the lines that many judges tell juries these days, a juror has the right to not only judge the facts of the case, but also the law itself. If a person is guilty of breaking a law, but the juror considers the law to be oppressive or in error, he has the right to find that person innocent. This is a method of keeping the government within its bounds, and it allows people to use their own conscience rather than the dictates of the state to determine what is right and what is wrong. And here are some court cases to undergird this. This is from John Jay, the first uh, first chief justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, 1789. Quote, the jury has the right to judge the law as well as the fact in controversy. This is uh, uh, Harlan F. Stone, 12th uh, chief justice, U.S. Supreme Court, 1941. The law itself is on trial quite as much as the cause which is to be decided. Here we have Samuel Chase, U.S. Supreme Court Justice, 1796, signer of the unanimous declaration, says following, The jury has the right to determine both the law and the facts. Here's another one, U.S. versus Daughtery. Uh, well, you see all the numbers there, 1972. Quote, the pages of history shine on the instances of the jury's exercise of its prerogative to disregard the instructions of the judge. That's I'm just reading you court cases. And here's the last one. Uh, Johnson engraved in Minnesota State Capitol outside the Supreme Court chambers. This is engraved. It says the following to emphasize justice by a multiplicity of laws or to hazard it by confidence in judges are the opposite rocks on which all civil institutions have been wrecked. What are we talking about? We're talking about all power in our country resides in who? The people. The people. And this is the last check, safeguard against tyranny when, you, when anyone is on a jury, if, if the person is guilty of the law, but in your own conscience you think, well, that law stinks. That is, it's, it's an unjust law. It is an evil law. Then you can vote according to your conscience, not guilty, because of the fact that the law is, is, uh, is an evil law. And when you do that, at least at the present time, they don't throw you in jail for voting not guilty on uh, on a jury. Now, the, throughout history, many nations, especially in Europe, degenerated to the point to where they would have a, a, a jury. It would be essentially a de facto jury. It was just in, in uh, form only. And anyone that would vote not guilty would go to prison. But we don't have that. We... This is, what I'm showing you is the importance of your conscience with regards to authority. And your, your conscience as to God is superior, period. Okay, Romans chapter 13, verse 6. We're just about out of time, but I probably ought to stop here, but I've I never, never learned. I try to squeeze out every little bit I can. So we'll go to Romans chapter 13, verse 6 in the last few minutes we have and we'll see what we can get. Romans thirteen six For because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God devoting themselves to this very thing. The authority structure of government for mankind requires support. Therefore, it is our duty to pay the taxes that are legitimately owed. So the context suggests that taxes are paid for the support of those who are servants of God who devote their time and energies to administering government under God. This is, this is legitimate. It is only right that those in government be supported by those they serve since their time is spent administering the affairs of government for the people. That's what this is about, and it's just and it's right. For rulers are servants of God. This is the third time governing authorities are referred to as ministers or servants of God. Have you noticed that? The third time. Paul is trying to emphasize that government is not above the law. It's not above God. They are servants of God. They're God's ministers. Only in this case, we're going to look at the word. uh, uh, It's a different word here. We'll see in just a moment. The context consistently refers to rulers who are servants of God for good. Everything is predicated upon this fact. It is an error to apply the mandates of submission found in these verses to governing authorities who are ministers of Satan for evil. Levying taxes is a serious business. Many wars have been fought over taxes. It certainly was an issue in the first war of independence. That's what I like to call what is normally called the Revolutionary War. I don't like that term because it's a misnomer. It wasn't a revolution. And nothing that I've said through this whole series advocates revolution. It is against the Bible. It is a sin if you engage in revolution against uh, uh, authority, period. And that's not what this is about. But they recognized that uh, part of the oppression that they were experiencing was certainly a tax issue, as well as the second war of independence, which is normally called the Civil War or the war between the states, and it was neither one of those. Remember, we already went through that in this series. It was a war of independence. It was the war of northern aggression, if you will. So in both those wars, taxes were a big issue. Uh, I think I'll end on this note right here. Servants of God. We have a Greek word here, which is uh, Laturgos, L-e-i-t-o-u-r-g-o-s. It's a noun. It's a uh, uh, nominative plural masculine from leitos, which it's a that's a, a a noun that's a feminine noun, and it means of the people plus aragon, which means work. So it means one who does the work for someone else. That's where we get that word. It's also where we get the word. Uh, liturgy we don't have liturgy here uh, we're we're not a liturgical church I don't want to get in that I'm just got a few minutes so I'll just press on uh, the word is different from the word translated minister which is used twice in verse four that word is diaconos which is referring to just a servant the word there means Service, but this word refers to one who does the work on behalf of another. So it has a different meaning here. And we'll end on this point right here. Just as the Levites in Israel were supported by the twelve tribes, so governing authorities are to be supported by taxes from the people. Why? Because the Levites were ministers of God, and those in governing Uh, the governing authorities are also ministers of God and they are to be supported because they are doing work for the people. We're going to close on that point. Um, We probably only have maybe one more uh, next time we meet, very possibly might conclude this series. Uh, But in the meantime, I'd like everybody please to bow their heads, close their eyes. It's very possible that we have someone in here that is not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and the issue for them is not one with regards to their relationship to civil authority but their relationship towards the Lord Jesus Christ. That is paramount. That is of the ultimate. Jesus Christ went to the cross and paid for your sins. He died, was buried, and resurrected. And now He offers eternal life to anyone who will trust Him and Him alone for it salvation is not of works it is by grace undeserved merit when you believe in Jesus Christ you receive eternal life in God's own righteousness and you can do it right now simply in your own soul in your own mind telling God the Father that this is the time that you're going to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and trust Him and Him alone rather than your own works in order to get to heaven. And in that moment, you were born again. Your ticket to heaven is guaranteed. Now the issue is to learn and grow so that you can be a faithful servant. Now, Father, we thank You for this time You've given us to focus on these things. It may be hard for some to get their head around this. We pray that we will have an open mind so that we can make decisions based on our conscience directed towards You that will be pleasing in Your sight. And we pray this all in Christ's most high and holy name. Amen.